Please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5, uh, but the focus of the message is going to be on just the first verse. Genesis chapter 1, we'll read uh, verses 1 through 5 together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Bow your heads with me as we pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for your word uh, that you have given given it to us so that we might know you, the one true and living God. We pray this morning that your spirit would um, hover upon our hearts and help us to know God in a greater way, to be more obedient to him, to worship worship him uh, from hearts full of faith. And we pray, dear Lord, that anyone who doesn't know Christ as Lord and Savior, that especially you would work in that heart to bring him or her to faith in Jesus Christ. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. This first line of one of my favorite books, you probably couldn't have guessed that. <laughs> the point of that first line is to get you to say, what in the world is a hobbit? And the rest of the book answers that question. It introduces you to everything that's going to follow. It's important to the overall story. There, We often memorize the opening lines of classic books. Like, I think everybody knows it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. Or maybe, you know, my name is Ishmael. Maybe your taste in classics isn't the same as mine, and you might know better. I am Sam. Sam, I am. (laughs) Regardless, uh, the first line in a book is, is important, right? This, but no first line in any book is any more profound or any more important than the first line in the book of the Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This, this shapes philosophy, science, but most importantly of all, theology. In other words, How do we know God? And often when people turn to Genesis and and present Genesis, it's that's the focus is to try to how how do we deal with this in the light of current scientific research and things like that. And and while that's important and valuable, I think in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It's more a theological statement than a scientific or philosophical statement. In other words, 
Genesis 1, the primary reason is there is not to tell us the origins of the world per se, but to point us to the creator of the world so that we might know him and love him and serve him and follow him and trust in him. Not only as the creator of the world, but the redeemer of all those who will trust in Christ. This is the beginning of all that. This is the beginning of the story of redemption. And without this first sentence, it would have never gotten off the ground. So today what I want to do is show you from the Bible that the God of the Bible is the maker of the entire universe. The God of the Bible is the maker of the entire universe. And, of course, that has profound significance for our lives. So we're going to look at three main points from Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. First, we're going to look at the nature of our maker. In other words, I'm answering the question, who is our maker? Who is the one who created us? So first, we'll look at the nature of our maker. Secondly, we'll look at the nature of his work. In other words, given that God is the God of the Bible, what did he do? What does it mean that he created? And then finally, we'll look at the maker's universe and consider more closely what he did. So we're going to look at the nature of our maker, the nature of his work, and the maker's universe. Now, I will say I will say something to those of you who may have trouble embracing Christianity because of Genesis chapter 1. You see it as conflicting with science or maybe you can't wrap your minds around how this this can work with what we find in modern science. One of the things you need to know is that uh the 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 conflict of Christianity and science is basically a myth. <laughs> There's not the conflict that is supposedly there is not really there. There is some conflict over creation versus evolution. I am not denying that. But just as an example, um, one of the examples that is often given of Christianity being backwards and always opposed to science is Copernicus and Galileo arguing that the earth revolves around the sun instead of vice versa. The thing that is often failed to be mentioned at that time is Copernicus and Galileo weren't just fighting against the church as the church. They were also fighting against the scientific consensus at the time. It wasn't just the church that was opposed. It was scientists who were opposed to what Copernicus and Galileo were doing. And there's lots more. There's lots Lots of other things that have been brought up historically to say that the church is always resistant to science. It's simply not. The, there's a the large majority of it is mythical and not real. The other thing you need to consider is that many scientists, including Copernicus and Galileo and Isaac Newton, were Christians themselves. Um, Many, if you go back and look at these these discoveries, you'll find Christian scientists behind it. Not the denomination Christian science. That's neither Christian nor science. But there are scientists who are Christian, and they are often 
behind the biggest discoveries in, in history. So Isaac Newton didn't see a conflict between being a Christian and being a scientist. Neither did uh, Kepler or Copernicus. They didn't see this conflict. So while you may have difficulty wrapping your mind around it and getting the answers that you need, there are answers, and, and maybe you just need maybe you just need to study more. I don't plan on answering all those questions today just to say that there are answers and this hasn't always been a conflict. So let's consider then the nature of our maker. First, I want to read from the Belgic Confession of Faith. The Belgic Confession of Faith is an early Reformed confession. Um, I'll spare you any, any more historical details. But in Article 2, it says, the question is, by what means God is made known to us? And this is what the confession says. We know him by two means. First, by creation, preservation, and government of the universe, which is before our eyes as a most elegant book, wherein all creatures, great and small, are so many characters leading us to contemplate the invisible things of God, namely his eternal power and divinity, as the Apostle Paul says. From, and, of course, that's from Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. All things were sufficient to convince men and leave them without excuse. Secondly, he makes himself more clearly and fully known to us by his holy and divine word. That is to say, as far as necessary for us to know in this life, to his glory and our salvation. So the Belgic Confession is saying that there are two books for Christians by which we may know God. The first book is the book of nature. This, I'll read for you what it says in Romans 1, verses 19 through 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. God's own creation declares something about who he is. Number one, it shows us that he exists. Because we know everything that we see in existence had a beginning. Therefore, if it had a beginning, it must have a beginner. Now, unbelievers will say, ha, if, if that's the case, everything has a beginning, then who, who began God? But that's, that's missing the point of the question, what we're saying entirely. What we're saying is everything that has a beginning has a beginner. We're not saying that everything has a beginning. We believe that God is eternal, and that's the next thing. Not only do we see that he exists, but we see that he's eternal. You see, in order, to God, in order for this verse to stand, in the beginning God created the heavens and earth, there had to be a God before the beginning. And God existed eternally. Otherwise, then you would have to say, then there was something else that created God, and then there was something else that created this. And that thing, would, whatever it was, would be God. There has to be, other, there has to be an end, <laughs> or you end up in an infinite regress, always trying to find another cause. There has to be a final cause, and we understand 
from nature and the Bible that that cause is God. And he, is, he both exists and he is eternal. He's without limits regard to time. We also see that God is wise. We see order in nature. And, and the ironic thing about that is if you watch a show on discovery about evolution, they will talk of evolution as if it's making plans or it has a design or how wise evolution is. But we know that evolution is blind chance. There is no direction that comes from it. But we see order and direction in our universe, and that says, screams to us, anything that has order and direction must have come from somebody who is wise, who made decisions, who had some intelligence. In fact, one of the, one of the ideas uh, to show that, that there is a wise God is called the anthropic principle. And the idea behind it is that earth is located in just the right place. And so many of the factors for all the forces of nature are just right for life on earth. And some want us to believe that that happened by a happy accident. If we were just a few decimal points off, the, the sun, in, if our orbit was just a few decimal points off, we would be too far from the sun and we would freeze to death. If we were just a few decimal points closer, we would be barbecued. This earth is in just the right place to be suitable for life. That speaks to an intelligent designer. A God is definitely more than an intelligent designer, but he's certainly not less than that. We also see that God is righteous and good because he created. There's other things that we could say, but from the book of nature, we can, we can understand that God exists. He's eternal, wise, and righteous. And the scriptures confirm this. And teach us the same thing even more clearly. That's what the Belgic Confession is arguing. That these things aren't in conflict. They point us to the same God. The God of the Bible. Now for sure the Bible teaches us things about God that we would never be able to get, through, get to by looking at creation. For example, we wouldn't get to the mercy and kindness and grace of God. That's revealed to us in the Bible. And it we especially wouldn't understand the Trinity without it being revealed to us in the Bible. We can understand that there's a God, that there's one God, but that there's three distinctions in this one being who have eternally existed is something that we learn purely from Scripture. It's above our ability to reason to or to comprehend. And we even see it here in the first pages of Genesis chapter 1. Now, when we see it in Genesis chapter 1, the Trinity that is, it's, it's kind of like I work second shift, so I come home at 2 in the morning and all the lights are off, and we have a black dog. Um, those two, and he likes to lay right in the pathway where you have to walk. So often I step on him or kick him or something like that all accidentally because I can't see him in the dark once the lights are on then I'm usually okay unless I'm just being klutzy and 
trip over them some other way. But this is what happens as far as the Bible is concerned. And Jewish people, when, when they read the, the Old Testament, they wouldn't have understood the Trinity because the lights weren't on yet. But once the lights are on, as believers in Jesus Christ, looking back in the Old Testament, we see things that weren't, we didn't see, other people didn't see before. For example, when it says, in the beginning, God, the word for God is the Hebrew word Elohim. And whenever you put an I am at the end of a Hebrew word, it means it's plural. Now, Jewish people didn't understand this to be about, a, about the Trinity. They interpreted it in different ways. But Christians can certainly see a hint to the plurality of God in the name Elohim. Not only do we see it there, but when we see um, in verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1 that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And we hear, and, and the Spirit is hovering over the waters, and the Spirit is the one bringing forth life from this creation that God gave. And we see in John chapter 3 where Jesus is saying that the new birth is brought about by the Spirit. So this new life that comes, that comes in a new believer is brought about by the Spirit. And we go back here in Genesis and we see this same thing happening, but in regards to creation. Then we see in verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And we see again and again, and God said, and God said, it was his word that brought forth life. And then John chapter 1 tells us, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And so we look back at this in Genesis chapter 1. The lights are now on because of the coming of Christ. And we see the Trinity as early as Genesis chapter 1. And it continues on through the Old Testament. My point is, is even that in Genesis chapter 1, we, we, even before we get there, we know God exists, that he's eternal, he's wise, he's righteous. And we... And even in Genesis, we see that the triune God of the Bible is the God who created all things. Christopher Hitchens, one of the four horsemen of the new atheists, Christopher Hitchens often, well, he was asked one time, what would you do if you got to heaven and you died and went to heaven and found out there really was a God, and he would say, I would say, you didn't give me enough evidence. Unfortunately for Hitchens, who has already met his maker, unfortunately for Hitchens and all who subscribed to his <laughs> viewpoint, the Bible doesn't give any excuses. There is no excuse. It, it's clear that there's a God. Both the book of nature and the book of scripture declare it plainly. If, the, if there was no God, there would be nothing. We wouldn't be here to exist and contemplate and question whether there's a God. There's no excuse for unbelief. God won't say to Hitchens or others who have the same excuse, well, okay, I understand, maybe I should have proved more. 
Because the truth is, if God had appeared to Christopher Hitchens and told him that I really exist, Christopher Hitchens would have blamed it on bad fried chicken the night before and not really accepted that there was a God. It's not the lack of evidence that is the problem. It's really the lack of wanting to believe because we're corrupted sinners. For believers, when we consider that God is the creator of the world, it it really is an astounding motivation. Look with me at uh, Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8. Listen to the first four verses as I read it for you. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place. Stop, stop there for a minute. David didn't have the Hubble telescope or any telescope to look through. And he was profoundly moved by looking at the stars and the moon that God created, all that he could see with his naked eye. He's profoundly moved by this, so much so that he's saying, how majestic is your name in all the earth? How much more should we be profoundly moved when we, get the, when we see those pictures from the Hubble telescope, the beauty that they uh, display? When we, when we can contemplate the vastness of space that didn't even enter into David's mind because these things hadn't been discovered or understood. David, David is simply looking with his naked eye. We have even much more to see. How much more should this the seeing nature and what God created cause us to worship him and say how majestic is your name? And then still even even further, David says, after he had contemplated the vastness of the universe, the beauty of the stars, in verse 4 he says, What is man that you're mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? When you look out and see that, and see how insignificant you are compared to the universe, and you wonder, why does God, why does he focus on me? What care would he have of me when he has all this? And he says in verse 6, you've given him dominion over all the works of your hands. You've put him all, all things under his feet. We're the vice regents over all creation. You see what God did? He crowned us with glory and honor. We, we mankind, are the crown of his creation. This ought to move us to worship God, that he has done these things. And when we see this beauty, and really it ought to be a motivation for us to explore the universe. It ought to be a motivation to be involved in science. Because science, under the fear of God, will lead us to worship God even more. So Christian, as, as Christians, we shouldn't be afraid of it. 
We should be exploring it so that we might know our God who created all things in, a, in great and profound ways. And we'll probably say the same thing as David did. But even, of course, even more profound than the beauty and the vastness of space, David's focus is on the Lord. He enjoys this in the fear of God. He says in uh, Psalm 8 and verse 1, You've set your glory above the heavens. And in at least the Greeks, I don't necessarily know about the Hebrews, but the Greeks, when they, they thought as you went out further into space, the more perfect things began, were. So if God is beyond that, he's the most perfect thing of all. So David isn't just seeing, seeing the universe and the beauty and stopping there. But he's seeing the beauty and the glory of God as well. And that leads him to worship God. I hope that, that, that it does the same for you when you consider who our God is. The eternal, wise, righteous God who gives life to all that exists. Who is, exists as one God in three persons who is gracious and merciful and kind. That ought to move us to worship God. Let's also consider the nature of God's work. The Bible says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So what does it mean that he created? Well, there's several things we need to say about that. Christians have believed for a long time that God created ex nihilo, that's the Latin term meaning out of nothing. The idea is that God didn't create using some material substance that always existed alongside of God. This is, this is the idea of dualism, that matter and spirit existed forever together, and God just, there was matter, and that God shaped and formed that matter, or however the creation story goes in that worldview. We, we're not affirming that. We're not affirming that God ha- had some matter and shaped it into what we have today. This is what pagans and uh, many New Age people believe today, that God used other matter to create the world. We also, by affirming ex nihilo creation, are denying that God created the universe out of himself. You hear this idea when people speak of there being a spark of divinity in every every person. There's a little bit of God in all of us. That's the idea of, of God creating f- from himself as, as if he's putting a little part of himself into all of creation. We're denying those things. And so to believe in creation ex nihilo means uh, that we believe God is the creator transcendent creator of all things he's the creator of matter he's the creator of of everything that's not god which we'll talk about more in a little bit this rules out dualism this rules out uh polytheism this rules out um atheism it rules out pantheism it rules out every other worldview other than um theism and the theistic religions, of course, Judaism, Christianity, 
and Islam. Uh, so we affirm creation ex nihilo. And one of the things that you see in Genesis chapter 1, if you look at the way God um, created the world, um, there, there's actually a pattern. The first, the first three days, God is forming the world. You know, in verse 2 it says, the earth was without form and void. So in, in the first three days, in different ways, God is forming, bringing order to the world. Because initially, there was an order, and he created the universe and however he created it, and then he brought order to that universe. He imposed an order, and you see that in the first three days. And then the final three days, he's filling it with his creatures. And you can see that pattern for yourself as you're reading uh, Genesis. This, when, I, when I learned this, uh, it, it really was eye-opening for me to see that this is what God is doing because God is, is like an artist. Uh, Bob Ross is being like God when he paints. Because if you, you all know who Bob Ross is, right? He's even on Netflix, so you kids have watched him. <laughs> if you look at his painting palette when he first begins, it's pretty clean and there's lots of colors, but there's no order to it other than they're blobs. As he goes along, it's complete chaos what is there. But the more chaotic his palette gets, the more nice his picture looks looks the more beauty it is he's he's forming it he's he's bringing order out of what is just a blob of paint he's bringing order to it and then he's filling it with happy little trees and happy little accidents or whatever Bob Ross fills it with God is is an artist he's forming and filling his world with with beauty and order to bring praise and glory to himself. And even in this, we see a reflection of God saving sinners. God, God does his work in similar ways. You see, when he saves sinners, God orders them and fills them with good works. St. Augustine teaches, I believe in his book, The Confessions, he teaches that one of the results of sin is that our, we're disordered. The way we were supposed to work, the way we were intended to work, that God created us to work, was that our reason would inform our will and we would choose what is good and right and we would love what is good and right. But when sin came into the world, sin messed all that up. So rather than using our reason to choose what is good and to love what is right, we we, our loves are first, our affections, our desires, that is first. And then we rationalize however we need to in order to get what we want in the first place, and we choose that. So as sinners, we're disordered in all of our faculties that God has given us. But when God saves us through faith in Jesus Christ, he starts to bring order back into our lives. And he fills us with good works as a result. So that as a Christian, mo most of the time, we desire to do what's good and right. Though we're not, 
yet perfect. We haven't yet been glorified. So sometimes we we choose what we love rather than, and we don't always love God. So we choose wrong things. But God is beginning to form and fill us and make renew that image of God that He put in Adam in the very in the very beginning in the garden. So already here in Genesis, we see hints of what how God is going to save sinners in the future. I'm not just, this isn't just something that I've thought up in, on my own to make up some kind of metaphor or analogy that's really not in Scripture. Uh, look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and you'll see uh, the Scriptures use this very same language. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. You heard that one before? (laughs) We just read it in Genesis. For God who said, let light shine out in the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There's creation metaphors being used to talk about how we're saved. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, the apostle tells us, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. So we, we, see, the nat- we see here the nature of God's work. He's, he's creating out of nothing. He's forming and filling everything with beauty and grandeur. He's making all things good. Let me, let me try, try to show you two stories. One story, and these, both these stories are prevalent in our, in our culture, one not as prevalent. But the most prevalent story in our culture is that billions of years ago, by chance, a, a ball of matter and energy happened to explode and expand into the universe in which we now exist. Focusing in more on Earth, that story goes that we, they start, there was a one-cell creature that went to multicellular creatures until you get to fish and amphibians and reptiles, birds, mammals, and finally, humanity. In this story, human beings are really no different than mosquitoes. The whole purpose of our life is to live and reproduce and die and go on and on until some cataclysmic end comes to this universe as we know it. It's obviously not a very exciting story. Um, Some who believe this science story Embrace the meaninglessness of it. Richard Dawkins says that the universe is blind, indifferent, and pitiless. And he just embraces it as that. Um, oh, man, I can't think of the guy's name. Anyway, he tries, to, he tries to get rid of the meaninglessness by telling us we're all stardust. Isn't that amazing that you're made out of stardust? 
It's Neil deGrasse Tyson. That's who it is. Neil deGrasse Tyson tries to get us excited and have meaning to our lives by saying, you're made out of stardust. But I really think he's just making it up to make himself feel better. There's not a whole lot of meaning or assurance or hope in this story. Now, we shouldn't choose the stories, the narratives that we believe based on how they make us feel. We should choose the stories and narratives that are the truth. But the other story is that God, the eternally wise, righteous, good, triune God, brought the universe into existence by the word of his mouth. He created all that there is. On the, last, on the sixth day of creation, he created mankind, with, which was the crowning achievement of his creation. He made humankind in his image in order to reflect him and to know him. And even though these human beings all, without fail, rebelled against him, he gave his son to redeem those sinners. And one day, those redeemed sinners will dwell with the God who created every, everything that exists through faith in Jesus Christ. Obviously, one story is much more meaningful and gives more assurance. One story is true and the other is false. We need, I hope that you'll choose the true story. The true story that God is the creator and redeemer of all who will put their faith in Jesus Christ. Genesis 1.1 points us to that true story. To that better story that tells the truth. Finally, let's consider the maker's universe. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. What, God, what I'm asking is, what is it that God created? He created the heavens and the earth. There's two ways to look at this, but they're not conflicting. Both are true. Um, the Bible, it says heavens in the plural, which the Bible speaks of three heavens. The first heaven is where the birds fly around. The second heaven is beyond our atmosphere and into space. And the third heaven is the dwelling place of God. So one way of looking at this is in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And by heavens, he, he means everything in heaven, including the angelic beings. Uh, he means everything in space, including the planets, dark matter, uh, multiverses, if there are any. He created all that, um, the asteroids and everything that inhabits space. And then finally, he created our atmosphere and the birds that fill it. So God created the heavens and everything that fills it. The other way to understand this is that God created the heavens and the earth, meaning he created the entire universe. All He created all that there is. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16, the Bible uh, credits creation, all of creation to Jesus Christ in this way. If I can get to it. Uh, 
Colossians 1.16, For by him, speaking of Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through him and for him. So God is the creator of anything that we can imagine, whether it's visible or invisible. God is the creator of it. I used to play a game with Shelby and Beth when they were little. We walked around on the Bible College campus, and I asked, I asked them, who made that? And the answer was God, when it was natural things. But, you know, when it's building and cars, it's man. Um, I hadn't really thought things through very well. Of course, I, I was in Bible college, so I was still learning. <laughs> but the reality is I think I was wrong because God created everything. And the reason I say that is it, God didn't just create things that naturally exist. God created everything, even, even if we put it together, the raw material was made by God. The processes that brought it, made it possible were created by God. We don't have time to turn there, but um, in, in Psalm 104, verses 14 to 15, you can look this up when you get home. Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15, give credit to God for making wine, oil, and bread. These things don't occur naturally in nature. Wine is a product that human beings use. But who was it that created the process of fermentation to get wine? That would be God. Oil, you, have, you actually have to, probably in this time, oil was from olives. You have to press and crush the oil in order to, it has to be processed in order to get it. But the psalmist is still giving credit to God. Bread doesn't bake itself. It doesn't mix itself. So even when human hands are involved in the production of something, the credit still goes to God and not us. We are using the processes and the, and the natural things that God created to benefit all of humanity. So God created everything. So the dinner you eat today... Whether you, or, whether the husband or wife or mom or dad prepares it, ultimately that meal comes from God, and you wouldn't have had it without Him. This, so this is important because culturally today, there's this idea that nature is always better than man-made. Sometimes that's true. There's a false, couple false assumptions under that idea. One is that um, they ignore the fall. So just because it's natural doesn't mean it's good because everything's fallen, including, including nature. But it's also mistaken because it seems to give credit to God only for the natural things and not for the products that humankind have made. This can lead to a kind of Gnosticism where Christians reject any technology or anything that made by human beings. It's easy to do. I mean, I use myself, my smartphone, but sometimes I hate it more than I like it. And sometimes I want to blame the devil for my smartphone. But the reality is this smartphone came from God. None of the pro- None of the raw materials or the processes that make your smartphone work were invented by human beings. We discovered them. We put them together with the help of God. 
but all of it came from God. And so we, we need to avoid this Gnostic tendency to hate technology. Now, because, we're, because the world is corrupt, technology can be abused, just like wine can be abused, and just like guns can be abused. All those things can be abused, but that doesn't mean that the thing in and of itself is wrong or bad. Uh, we, as Christians, have a tendency to head towards asceticism, rejecting all those things. We'd rather live in a cave like John the Baptist did and eat uh, locusts and hunt. Well, maybe we won't go that far. <laughs> Because we want to escape from this, thinking we've escaped from the worldliness and all that's bad. But the reality is then you're, then you're looking at creation, what God called good, and saying it's bad or evil. So the, the other tendency to avoid, which we do better at avoiding, is that because matter is bad, um, our, our bodies are bad, so it really doesn't matter what we do. So let's eat, drink, and be merry and live however we want because it's our soul that matters and it goes to heaven. Christians are pretty good at avoiding that idea, but we we do poorly when it comes to embracing the good things that God has made and balancing uh, the corruption with the goodness. So everything that exists, God created. And because he created, he is the Lord and he has authority over all things. God is the one who created gender. God is the one who created marriage. God is the one who created family. So guess who gets to have a say on gender, marriage, and family? That's right. God does. God's the, God created cult, different cultures. God created different ethnicities, all to bring His for his glory and praise. And every culture has positive things because we're created in the image of God. Every culture has negative things because we've corrupted that image through our sin. But God created all things, and he is the Lord over all. And as believers in Christ, knowing God is the creator, he made us, and therefore he has authority over us. He has rule over us. Not only do we owe him our our worship, but we owe him our obedience. And for believers in Christ, we doubly owe him our obedience because not only did God make us and sustain us, but God gave his son to die on the cross for sinners like us. In gratitude, we ought to obey him. But friends, it's not enough just to believe that God is creator. If you don't get past Genesis chapter 1 and get to the gospels where Christ came, that kind of faith won't save You can be ardently believe that the Lord created the world in six literal 24-hour days and he rested on the seventh. You can believe that all your heart, but if if, if that's all you believe is that God made the world, that is not the kind of faith that saves. The kind of faith that saves sees that not only God is the creator, but he's the redeemer. The creator himself came into the world to give his life for sinners like us. You must believe in Christ. You must trust in him to forgive your sins and save you from your disobedience. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that you've given to us. We thank you uh, for both the books of both books, the book of nature 
and the book of Scripture that lead us to know and worship God. I pray, God, that we will know and worship you in a greater day, in a greater way today. We pray it in Jesus' name.